Good morning. I'm Jennifer McClish. We're reading this morning from Nehemiah 1, 1 through 11. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them considering the Jews who escaped and who had survived the exile and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O oh Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, Though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, we begin a journey today through the book of Nehemiah. Uh, and I think this is gonna be a, a really important uh, study for our church. I'm very excited about it. A, a study that I've been thinking about for some time. Um, a lot of you maybe, if you've been around church for any number of years, have heard Nehemiah preached. It has been kind of used in Christian preaching as like a Christian leadership manual. And, and there are certainly things to learn uh, about leadership in Nehemiah. But I actually think so much more uh, is going on. And I think that this book is so instructive for us, I think particularly in this time, uh, and I think it has a lot to show us about the character and the nature of God. So we have a lot to do today, but I really just have two big points. The first is Nehemiah's experience. And the second is Nehemiah's prayer. Nehemiah's experience. Uh, let's just start in verse one again. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. So for a long time, and this is important to understand, for a long time in ancient, the ancient history of Israel and Hebrew history in, in the history of even the church, Nehemiah and Ezra were one book. They, they were kind of a, initially presented as one book, okay? It was actually not until the ninth century that they 
split up. Now, the reason that they split up is what we see here, right? There's kind of this new narrator, right? There's this new author. We, we believe we're, we're getting this account from Nehemiah. But I actually think it's important to understand that this, that this work, Nehemiah, is a part of a larger whole. And we'll get to that here in just a second. But let me just go on. Now, it happened in the month of Shizlev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. So I want to pause here. We're still in point one, but it's not going to feel like point one for about 15 minutes, okay? But what I want to do is zoom way out for you. So if you're new to Bible study, the Bible is unlike any other book, and it has so much power because it is the Word of God. And so there are people, I know people, that have literally read one verse of Scripture. They have no context of the biblical narrative, of the biblical history, of Jewish history, of all these things that we see in the Bible. They've read one verse of Scripture, and through that verse, God has spoken to them, and their lives have been changed. And, and there's a lot of you that have had that experience. Maybe you know have read more than one verse, but there's just been a verse that here or there has incredibly impacted you, and you've heard from the Lord. And that's important. The Bible works that way. It's important to meditate on very small pieces of Scripture. But it's also incredibly important as, as we as a church grow in our understanding of what God has revealed through his word, that we also understand kind of the full scope of the Bible, the full feature of what God has given to us in his word. Now, studying the Old Testament can be kind of challenging. For, for some of you that you're maybe new to Old Testament study, it's kind of hard sometimes to just dive in and really catch everything that's going on. I think the, the more you get into it, the more you realize there is so much going on here. But I just want to give you really quick a snapshot. This is kind of a how-to study the Old Testament. We actually started a course, Old Testament Survey 1, uh, taught by Will Kynes this weekend. Some of y'all took that class. I'm so glad that you did. But I just want to give you a survey or a snapshot of how to study the Old Testament. So when studying the Old Testament, there's kind of four things that you need to be aware of. And the first is the idea of themes. There are themes that you begin to see in Scripture um, at the beginning to see through the Old Testament that kind of repeat themselves. You'll notice this as you study the Bible. There are these themes or these stories that kind of happen over and over and over again. That's really important. So for example, the theme of the offspring, right? That's something that's introduced very early in Scripture. If you remember, if you know the story at all of Scripture, God had created the world, Adam and Eve fell into sin. And even as they were receiving punishment for their sin, God promised an offspring to them that would overcome the curse of sin, that would deliver them. And, and what do we see? Adam and Eve have a child and they think, ah, oh, the deliverer has come. The, the, the one who is going to save us is here, but that didn't happen because this child was at war with his brother, which is another theme. Okay, I can't get into this too much, but that's another theme that starts happening over and over in Scripture. So there's these themes that you can see, the theme of offspring, the theory of enmity between the brothers. These, these things happen. The other thing you need to pay attention to, there's so much I could say about all of these, but I got to keep moving. The other thing that you need to pay attention to is signs. There's signs throughout the Bible. And so, for example... 
There's what I call like the water sign of scripture. Think of the, the narrative of Noah and the ark, right? Everybody is sinning. The whole world is turned away from the Lord. God is going to bring judgment on the world. How? He's going to bring judgment through water, but God's covenant people, right? The people that God is calling to himself, the people that God is saying, I want to display my glory through this people. They are saved from the water. They're saved from the judgment. And that theme, that kind of water sign you see over and over. Think about the Hebrew people when they're leaving Egypt, right? God brings destruction upon the Egyptians in the Red Sea, but his covenant people, the ones that he's wanting to display his glory through, what happens to them? They cross through safely. When the people enter the promised land, they cross the Jordan River safely. Jonah, the disobedient prophet who kind of experiences both of this, right? The judgment of the water and salvation from the water. So again, that's a sign. You see these signs all throughout the Bible. And the promises are the, the themes, the signs, and the last one, the promises, all kind of go together too. They, they overlap as it were. So the last one is promises, or you may have heard it described as covenants, right? Covenant is kind of a word for promise. God makes covenants. He makes promises. And so all throughout the Bible, God is wanting to show, wanting to display his glory, his name, his renown, his character through his people. And the way he enters into those relationships is through a promise or through a covenant. And there's different things that are surrounding those covenants. There's different things the Lord is displaying. He displays some things in his covenant with Noah. He displays some things in his covenant with Moses. He displays some things in his covenant with David. And again, there's a lot to be said about all of that. We are, I want you to hear this, a covenant people of God. If you are in Christ, if you're a Christian, if you're trusting in Jesus for your life, for your identity, for your salvation, then you are a part of what God has established called the new covenant. You are a new covenant people that God has established with people through his son, Jesus. So, Themes, signs, promises. As you study the Old Testament, take note of these things. They, they come up over and over and over again uh, throughout the story. And then the final thing that you just kind of have to have some awareness of is just what I'll call the story arc. There is kind of this big story going on in the Old Testament narrative. And I want to just kind of catch you up where we are in the book of Nehemiah, how did we get here and what is going on that we probably ought to pay attention to? So God's, this grand story really starts to take shape when God makes a covenant with Abraham and he says, you will have an offspring theme, okay? And that offspring is going to grow into a great nation and that is going, that, that nation is going to be a blessing to the whole world. And there was a promise of land. And we see that theme kind of continue throughout the Bible. The promise of the blessing and the glory of God being known through this covenant people. And of course that begins to happen and God begins to deal with these people. And there's a lot of history there. This is kind of what the whole book of Genesis is about. But then tragedy strikes, there's famine in the land. 
But God in his providence delivers his people. Actually, the, the way that this is described is that Joseph, one of the descendants of Abraham, went to Egypt ahead of his family as a deliverer for his family. And another theme, this theme of deliverer starts to come up. This person that God has set forward and called to deliver his people. And so for a while, the people of God, the, this covenant people are in Egypt. This is kind of the Exodus narrative. If you've read that book of the Bible, they fall into slavery under Egyptian oppression, but God raises up another deliverer. Now we have Abraham. We have this other deliverer, Moses. And some of y'all know this story, right? Actually, I was talking to Somebody recently that says, you know, I don't know much of scripture, but I have seen the movie, The Ten Commandments, which is an amazing movie, right? And maybe if you're new to Bible study, you've seen the movie, The Ten Commandments, which tells this story of this great deliverer, Moses, who delivered the people from the hand of the Egyptians. And God, as I said before, brought destruction upon his enemies, but salvation to his people. And Moses led the people out too. And this is really important, okay? So the most important moments in the Bible to Mount Sinai. Now, what happens at Mount Sinai? Three very important things begin to happen that you can't really understand Ezra and Nehemiah unless you understand what happened at Sinai. The first thing that happened is God literally came to dwell among the people. The presence of God was with this covenant people in the Ark of the Covenant, at first in the tabernacle. They had a kind of a portable temple that was called the tabernacle. And then later on in the story, in the temple, where literally among God's covenant people, the presence of God dwelt. So I'm just going to call this idea for simplicity, God templing or tabernacling among the people. The second thing that happened in Sinai, also very important, is that God gave the people the law. And, and the law, if you, you, know, you may have heard, what is the law? What is the Old Testament law? The law is a reflection of God's order and character. So we, we study the law to understand who God is so that we can be like him. And God wanted his people to be a distinct people, a people like him that reflected his glory so that through his people, all the world could know the power and the wonder and the goodness and the glory of God. And then the final thing that happened is a journey began from Mount Sinai. Now it ended up taking a long time, okay? So there's a lot of story in here, but a journey began where God led them into the promised land, the land that he had promised Abraham. And they established a kingdom. And there was a capital city of the kingdom, the place called Jerusalem. And there was the great temple there. And this, for this great city where God's people would dwell and from where his glory would be known. And eventually, and you kind of read this in the narrative, God gives the people the land. He establishes a king and a kingdom. And all of the sudden, this is all happening. God's people are blessed. Uh, uh, the city is established. The temple is built. And God's glory comes down. The same thing 
thing happened at Mount Sinai, the, the, the glory of God and fire comes down to dwell among the people. We see the same thing happen when they dedicate, when Solomon dedicates the temple, God's presence is among them. And as the people followed God's law and were faithful to his word and lived out his way and worshiped him in the temple, he would bless the kingdom. And through this, the glory of God would be known through his people. But tragedy strikes. The people forsake the Sabbath. The people forget the law. And the kingdom begins to crumble. At first, it's divided into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And there's all these factions and wars and impurities that happen among those kingdoms. And eventually, these kingdoms are taken away. The northern kingdom in 722 BC is overtaken by the Assyrians. And really, if you kind of know your Old Testament history, this, these 10 tribes that were taken away, we really, they really don't have a reunifying moment. Some of them came back later to be a part of the people of God. But the, the identity of so much of those tribes was lost really forever. But the Southern Kingdom, the people of Judah held on a little longer, but eventually they were taken away in 586 BC by the Babylonians. But even though all seemed lost, God was still faithful to his people, even when they were in exile, even when it just seemed like there was no hope for them. You know, I think about these Afghani Christians that, that God, I believe, is preserving through ministries like Help the Persecuted. God is showing favor to them in this very, 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 very difficult situation. And I, and I so admire their faith. I so admire that they are pursuing the Lord and wanting to be faithful. And th these young pastors that Josh mentioned earlier, wanting to stay, wanting to carry out what God, they believe that God has called them to do. And, and God has always behaved like that. He's, he's been faithful to his people. And even when his people were so sinful and been taken away from the land. And there was real consequence for that. God spoke to his people by the prophets. And, and as we read, for example, in the book of Daniel, there was, there was real blessing and real favor that God gave his people. But eventually the Babylonians were taken over by another group, the Persians. And the way that the Persians operated is that they wanted these Hebrew people that they had been taken into captivity to go back to their homeland. And that's really where we are in the narrative. The Persians have taken over and Israel has this chance to kind of reestablish themselves in their homeland. This post-exilic is kind of what it's called after the exile time. Now, as I said, if y'all remember Ezra, Nehemiah, used to be the same book because, and I think that's important because what we read in Nehemiah is really, I think, the third big movement of that bigger book. Okay, so we're kind of picking, we're kind of jumping into the third movement. Let me quickly explain what happened in the first two movements, okay? The first half of Ezra is about these people after the exile going back to Jerusalem and what? they go back and rebuild the temple, right? These things that God established, they knew were important. They knew that if, if God's glory was gonna be known through them, if God's 
fame and goodness and worth would be spread throughout the world, that these things needed to be in place. And so they, they go back, a guy named Zerubbabel. Anybody ever know somebody named Zerubbabel? Um, I actually had a friend in Alabama named Zerubbabel, right? We name him crazy in Alabama. But anyway, Zerubbabel goes back and rebuilds a temple. Now, gets all the people together, they rebuild this temple. And what's supposed to happen when the people build the temple, when they build the tabernacle? They'd seen this happen. God's glory comes down from heaven and fills the temple, fills the tabernacle. Only when Zerubbabel built his temple, guess what didn't happen? There was nothing like that. There was no like God filling the temple. And the elders who had seen Solomon's temple and now were seeing Zerubbabel's temple when they saw this wept. That was the first movement. The second movement, Ezra, this is in the book of Ezra, Ezra goes back and begins to preach. He opens the Torah, he opens the law, and he begins to preach to people. But there's, as a result of this, there's massive confusion. And people don't know what to believe and what to not believe and how they should follow the law. So it kind of ends in this peculiar way. And now we pick up in this third movement and you could say it's this, this movement, this whole book, to reestablish this kingdom that God had established. This kingdom people where his glory would be known, where the goodness and the power of God, where redemption for the whole world and blessing for the whole world might go from. So, Nehemiah, verse 3. That was, we're still in point number one, but now we're back in the text. So, verse 3 there's all this back and forth. This is about 20 years after the Persians had taken over and Nehemiah gets this report. What's going on in Jerusalem? Verse three says, they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile. Now I didn't mention this, but not everyone was taken away into captivity. Most were, some remained. They were able to escape and stay in the land um, that's who he's talking about here. So the, the people that had been taken away are going back. They're kind of talking to those people. And he says, they're in great trouble and shame. And Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the great city, the, the sign of God's glory, this, this sign of God's wonder, the great city, Jerusalem, is broken down. And its gates are destroyed by fire. Now, because... Most of you, like me, have probably always heard Nehemiah taught as like a principles of leadership kind of guidebook in the Bible. I think we miss where this book, I think, is incredibly helpful for particularly where we are as a church right now, where, where Christ's covenant is right now in this post-exilic, we're not in a post-exilic period, but I think this period is incredibly helpful for where we are. It's not the time of exile, right? It's not for Israel this time where they are being oppressed. There, there is a sense of, of freedom that they have. They're able to go back. They're able to worship. But there's a lot of confusion around that. And they're living in a time where they're underneath the authority of an opposing worldview. And I think for the church right now, that, that's really, this is instructive for us. As Christians right now in America, in Atlanta, Georgia, 
we're not in a time of you know, great oppression, right? We're, it's not Afghanistan. It's not that. But we do find ourselves in this moment of time where the, I would say the authority structure of the culture around us does not recognize a biblical worldview, does not recognize the authority of God's revelation. It's a secular culture. It's a secular power structure. And Christians, and I just want to give this as a warning to us, Christians have struggled in a setting like that. You've heard me say this before, but, but typically when Christians find themselves in a culture that doesn't recognize their worldview, they do one of two things. The first is they have a tendency to assimilate, right? Just to become like the culture, to, to want to appease the culture, to be more faithful to the wishes of the culture than they are to the word of the Lord. I had a conversation not too long ago with a pastor friend and he was, we were talking about kind of modern sexual ethics and, uh, and how they're very different than biblical sexual ethics. And he said to me, look, Jason, I just don't want to be on the wrong side of history, we may need to go back and revisit some of the biblical texts. And I said to him, look, man, with, with all due respect, I was like, if we lived in a time when the world around us was aligned with kind of a biblical sexual ethic, and you were opening these texts to me and saying, look, maybe we've been reading this wrong, then maybe I'd be like, okay, like maybe I have been reading the Bible wrong. Maybe I should relook at this. But all this is, is you accommodating to Fortune 500 companies and to the media around you, to the larger culture around you. This is just you wanting to be in good with the broader culture. It's assimilation. Christians have often gone that way. But the other way that Christians tend to go is towards separation, where in, in order to kind of maintain orthodoxy or purity, we, we separate from the broader culture. We, we have no mission about our lives, no desire to reach the world around us, to engage with the world around us, to, to, to try to be a blessing to people who disagree with us. I think this, this setting, this post-exilic time is incredibly helpful to a church trying to, to hold on to biblical orthodoxy trying to hold on to a faithful understanding of what God has communicated in his word in a secular age. And that's where we find ourselves. What, what I so want for this church, what God so wants for this church is that we would be a people neither given to assimilation or separation, but that we would be as God's ambassadors present in this age so that his glory might be known, so that his name may go forward, so that his kingdom may advance. The other thing that I think these books are really helpful for, it's hard to know who are the people of God in this time. Who's really Israel? Who's really uh, the pure people of God? Who's really the people that are following the Lord? Is all who call themselves Israel really Israel. I think we live in a very similar time. Is all who call themselves Christian really Christian, right? How do we discern that? How do we know that? You know, people say all the time, what's the greatest threat to the church? And I'll go and tell you, the greatest threat to the church is nothing outside. It has everything to do with inside. It has everything to do with the impurity of a church. When the church becomes impure, that's when we really get in trouble. 
Most everyone that I know that has walked away from the Christian faith has done so because of a scar, because of an inconsistency, because of a bad experience within the church. And when Christians behave like the world, when Christians are abusive and greedy and unkind and dishonest and worldly and celebrate ungodly things, this is incredibly harmful to the church and incredibly confusing to the watching world. So living in a world that doesn't share my worldview living among a confused and sometimes faithless people that can't agree on anything. This is what we find in the post-exilic period. And this is incredibly familiar to all of us trying to be faithful to the Lord in this age. So Nehemiah is the servant of the king. He's heard this report of Israel. The wall is destroyed. The gates have been burned. And look at his response. And I think this is so powerful. Verse four, hear this church. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Now, this is so powerful. Nehemiah has this reaction. Why? Because he knows the themes. <laughs> he knows who his people are supposed to be. He knows that there's supposed to be a temple where the glory of God dwells. He knows that the people are supposed to be pure, following the law of God. He knows that the kingdom of God is supposed to be known through his covenant people so that through this people, the glory of God and the blessing of God may extend to the whole world. Nehemiah knows exactly who he is and who he's supposed to be. And he sees the condition of that moment. And it's so far from that. And, and I would ask you this question. Do you ever weep? Do you ever weep? Do I ever weep? When we consider not just the global perspective of the world, but just the lostness of the moment right now. Like, have you ever wept for your neighbor that doesn't know the Lord? Have you ever wept just for the brokenness that exists in the city all around us, for the intense poverty and abuse and abandonment? Have you ever wept for the children of this city who so many of them have no stable home life, who so many of them in our schools are really aren't learning to read because there's no support and help at home and they're worried and they're hungry? Have you ever wept for these people? Or have we assimilated? Or we just say, well, this is just the way it is. Or have we separated? Have we turned a blind eye to it? So it's not my problem. It's not, it's not my child. It's not, <laughs> it's not affecting me, really. I'm insulated from this. And I guess I would just ask you, and I would ask me, like, do we really know who we are? Do you really believe that you are an ambassador for the king of the universe? Do you really believe that the Holy Spirit of God has filled your life, that the presence and the glory of God is to be known through your life? Do we ever weep? Do, do, do we, are we even burdened for the kingdom of Christ to go forward, for the great commission to go forward through you, through me? You know, next week, we're going to celebrate our four-year birthday as a church. And, and in one sense, and I want you to hear this, I, I don't want to be, you know, a, a doldrum prophet here. But in one sense, I'm incredibly grateful. Man, God has been so kind to our church 
And I'm so grateful for what God has done and what he's done in your lives. And I've seen life change and I've seen amazing things happen. But on the other side, I always say to myself, man, are we failing? Do we really love the Lord? You know, we gather really well, but do we scatter really well? Do we scatter with any burden? Are we engaging in our communities, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, faithfully as, with some urgency? Do we care about the global church? Do we care that we have brothers and sisters who are deeply under oppression? Or are we just in a hurry to get to the soccer game? Are we in a hurry to get to Little Ray's afterward? And I'm not saying that that's not important. I'm not even saying that community with your church family after church, I mean, that's, but man, do, have we, have we, are we open to the Lord? Are we the kind of people that have these experiences like Nehemiah does here, where he weeps? He's broken over the people. He's broken for days because he knows it's not what God desires. You know, we've been at this great commission thing for 2,000 years. <laughs> I just wish we would have had more progress. As amazing that it is that the, the gospel has gone from Jerusalem all over the world, I just wish that, I wish that he'd have more progress. And, and, and I want to be the kind of guy, God wants us to be the kind of church that is faithful to this calling that matters in 10,000 years, that matters for the rest of eternity. And so with that in mind, I, I want to move to the second point where I think this comes from, and that is Nehemiah's prayer. How can we be <laughs> this kind of people that's awake to these things and that's not overcome by these things? So look at verse five. Now here's how his prayer begins. Nehemiah has just heard this horrible news. The city of God, where the glory of God's gonna be known is in shambles. Verse five, here's what he prays. Oh Lord, God of heaven. <laughs> the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. I love this. How is Nehemiah not overcome by this tragedy that he hears about? And here's how. His confidence is in the Lord. His God is awesome. His God is great. The, the anchor of Nehemiah's life is not his own achievement. It's not his own ability. It's not his own, you know, willingness to go solve the problem. That's how Nehemiah is taught. This is, this is where, if you've heard Nehemiah taught, people have just so missed it. Nehemiah, you know why Nehemiah is a great leader? He's a great leader because he has a great God. And you know how God is going to use you and people like me? It, 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 he will use us to the degree that we are confident in his greatness. The, the more confident you are in the greatness and the awesomeness of God, the more useful you will be for his kingdom. And this is where Nehemiah begins. And I just would ask us, like, is this where we go? When you're discouraged, when you're broken, when you're let down, when you get the disappointing news, when you see the tragedy, do you go to my God is great and awesome. He keeps his promises. He keeps his covenants. He begins with praise. He begins with anchoring his whole identity in life in the greatness of God. You know, I too often 
when trials come, when problems come, I mean, y'all know me. If y'all know me, y'all should be like, Jason, you need to listen to this because I'm a problem solver and I think I'm smart and I think I'm capable. And I, and if something comes, I'm like, I can do that. I can fix it. I love here. You know what Nehemiah does? What does he do in the face of a problem? His first inclination is to worship. It's not that we, it's not that meaningful action is not necessary. It is. And we're going to see a lot of meaningful action as we study this book, but it's a meaningful action that is the response to worship, not the other way around. So the first thing we see in Nehemiah's prayer here that I think we can learn from is just praise to God. And as Nehemiah praises the Lord and sees his power and his wonder and his worth, what does he do? The second thing is there's a confession of his own sin. Look at verse six. He says, let your ear be attentive to you and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes and the rules that you commanded through your servant Moses. I love this. Christian, this is a good warning to us. It's very easy in a time where we see a lot of brokenness around us to say, well, it's his fault. If only we had a different this or that, or if only they wouldn't do this or they wouldn't do that. It's very easy to kind of just point the finger. I love Nehemiah's response here. He says, look, where did this begin? It began with my unfaithfulness. There is a deep understanding of his own unfaithfulness to the living God. And I guess I would just ask that, like as we respond to the brokenness around us, do, do, we, do we start with confession and our own impurity before holy God? And he does actually more than that because not only does he confess his own sin, he confesses the sin of his people. He sees himself not only as an individual, but as a part of a body. And again, I, I believe that the Lord so wants this I want us to understand, God wants us to understand the church this way, that we are a body together. When one of us stumbles, we all stumble. Is there anyone in your life that you can honestly say, I am bearing their burdens? I am coming alongside them. I am pleading with God for them. I am bearing their burdens. They're, we are a part of a people together. We've covenanted together. That's why we named our church Christ Covenant. We're a people together. We're gonna bear one another's burdens. We're gonna to celebrate together, we're gonna to confess sin together, and we're gonna be on mission together. There's so much more that can happen when you, when you begin to see yourself as a part of a people. Do you see yourself like that? Or are you just kind of some individual that's trying to do certain things and make sure that not too much of the blame gets connected to you? I love this, Nehemiah jumps straight into confession. He owns his own sin, he owns the sin of his people. But then third, he remembers that God is redeeming God. He remembers God's redemption. Look at verse eight. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them. 
and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you've redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. You see this kind of language in the Bible where people will pray to God. Hey, remember this, remember this. And, and I don't read that in the wrong way. It's not as if God's needing to be reminded like, oh yeah, I do have a covenant with Israel. No, it, it, it is a means of God desires that we pray his promises back to him so that they will deeply penetrate our own hearts. All Nehemiah is doing is saying here is God, I know that this is true of you. You are a God who keeps his promise. You're a God who desires his glory to be known. You are a God who is faithful to his people and you are a God who will redeem his people no matter how broken they are, no matter how far they are from him. And this is a good word. God is a God of redemption. That is, that is the work that Christ is doing. Jesus redeems. He makes all things new. He makes the most broken things new and right and whole. You know, Nehemiah is not the last person to weep over Jerusalem. Later, of course, our Lord Jesus would come. And it's the same kind of language. He looked at Jerusalem and he wept and he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And then what did he say? He said, oh, how I longed to gather you. And then what did Jesus do? He entered into the city of Jerusalem and he was put to death by the city of Jerusalem. He, he took on the burden of the sin of Jerusalem and not just their sin, but our sin too. So that through his death and through the power of his resurrection, a gathering would happen from even the farthest places of the universe, as Nehemiah says. And I would just say this to you. You know, if you're kind of new to this Christian life or if you've been a Christian a long time, don't you know that it, God desires to gather you? As you look to Christ, as you, as you turn from yourself and turn toward Jesus, Jesus is in the work of gathering, of calling his church so that through his church, his glory could be known. This is what our Lord is doing and it's what he's doing today. And so I just would encourage you, like some of you right now, the spirit of God may be gathering you toward the Lord. Look to Jesus. Re confess your sins, repent of your sins, look to Jesus. And know that the living God who redeems, no matter how broken you are, no matter how messed up you think your life may be, God redeems. He's calling you to himself to be his people so that through you, his glory might be known. Nehemiah praises God, he confesses sin, he remembers the redeeming work of God, and then finally, he responds in supplication. Look at verse 11. Oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight, I love this, who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. And I included this last little bit because I think it's important. I was the cupbearer to the king. Nehemiah sees the brokenness of the city. And as we're gonna see over the next few weeks, God is gonna use him, but it begins with him calling out to God. It begins with him praying, a prayer of supplication for what he is called to do for his people, for God's restorative power. And he remembers that he's the cupbearer. And, and actually, as we're gonna see next week, that was important. From, from that little post, God actually was able to show grace to the people of Israel. And, and I include that because as, as we think about the restorative and redeeming work that God is calling us to, 
you know, some of you are cupbearers, right? God has put you in places. God has put you around people. God has given you jobs. He's called you to houses, to neighborhoods. There's, there's things in your life that are not by accident. God is doing that. God is doing that. And I would just say, are you attuned to that? Like, how is God using where he's put you so that his glory would be known? And so how I want to close today is, is really just to lead us as a church. And we, we don't often do this in just a few moments of corporate confession and praise and prayer to the living God. And so I'm just going to ask you, would you bow your heads with me? And I, I just, I want to kind of lead you through, just as we saw in Nehemiah's prayer, but I want you to pray, right? Sometimes during prayer, you kind of listen to the guy up front. You're not really praying. You got to like really pray. And so I just want to invite you right now, as Nehemiah did, to praise God, the great and awesome God who spoke the universe into being, who keeps his covenants, who is sovereign over all things. Just spend some time praising this great God. And as you think about how great he is, I hope God brings to mind how ungreat we are. And so I invite you in this time, just to, as Nehemiah did, to confess. I love what Josh said earlier, even for you who are Christians, who have the hope of salvation and redemption, what is interrupting your communion with the Lord? What sin in your life is, is interrupting that? Because it's, it's really unconfessed and undealt with. Take some time to confess those things. If you're not a believer here today, and God is even now, you, you, there is something happening in your heart. That is the, the Lord opening your heart to him. Confess your sin. Confess your need for him. Spend some time confessing before the Lord, not, not only on just on your behalf, but on behalf of the community that God's called you to be a part of. And as you confess, I, I want you to take confidence now. I want you to take confidence in this, in this truth that the Son of God was willing to come to earth to identify with you in every way and was willing to face God's wrath in your place and to pay with his blood for every, for all, completely for your sin. And so now I just remember God's redeeming work that he is a God of redemption who's covering your sin by the blood of Christ and wants to actually redeem your life. That, that what God says of you in Christ, that you are righteous, would actually be true of you. Remember God's redeeming work now. Thank him for it. Ask God to continue his work of salvation and restoration in your heart and life.
And finally, I, <clears throat> I invite you to plead with the Lord. What is God opening your eyes to right now? What, what message are you receiving that, that really should bring you to tears? God wants to, for you to be a part of this redeeming work that the glory that's to be known through his kingdom, you are the agent of that kingdom, the ambassador for that kingdom. Just spend a few moments asking God to move through your life, through the life of your family, through the life of our church, toward whatever that is that the Lord's laying on your heart right now. So Father, the great and awesome God who is over all things, who is sovereign over the whole universe, not a square inch that exists in, in any part of creation, Lord, exists outside of your sovereign control. And so Lord, we, we praise you knowing that you are the Lord of all things, even our lives. And we thank you, Father, that you are faithful and consistent, that we can always count on you, that you keep your promises, that your ways are always right. There is no sin, there is no corruption in your heart. You are the definition of good and justice. And so, Father, in light of who you are, we know that we are not that. And we confess, Father, I confess I confess on behalf of myself and on behalf of our church, our self-centeredness, our blindness to the Lord, the things that you've called us to, our laziness. Lord, our perversion of your law, our perversion of your institutions and of your ways, our, our perversion of the gifts that you've given us, Lord. Cleanse us from this, Father. Convict us of these things by the power of your Holy Spirit. And Father, lead us and even lead us now to look fully and faithfully into the redeeming work of Jesus. He is our only hope. He is our only hope. And Father, I confess now, I confess now on behalf of myself and, and even on behalf of, I know so many here, our faith in him, that we believe that because you loved us, you sent Jesus to live a perfect and righteous life and to die a sinner's death in our place so that in him, Lord, we may be forgiven and may have life in you and may have the hope, the redeeming hope of an eternal home where we will be with you as your people forever. And so Lord, we take confidence in this redeeming work and the redeeming work of the Lord. I believe Lord that you are gathering, you have gathered so many here and you are even gathering some now. Plant us deep in confidence in the redeeming work of Christ. And Father, we do pray as Christians, as people that have been redeemed, the people that you have called to be your people, that we would take that calling seriously, that we'd be passionate about making disciples. We'd be passionate about sharing our faith. We'd be passionate about engaging with brokenness, that we would actually bear burdens. They'd use this church, Lord, to bring transformation in our city to bring about literacy, to overcome poverty, to, to bring about salvation, Lord, through the sharing of the gospel to thousands, Lord, that I know you desire to gather. We pray that you'd use our church to plant churches here in Atlanta, all over the world, Lord, that, that we would be used. Help us to be faithful, Father. There's so much left undone. We need your help, Lord. 
Father, we are confident that even now you hear these prayers as we pray them in the name of Jesus. Amen.